Curiosities. As always, I am your humble host, Oldsgood. You've caught me in the middle of installing my new exhibition for October, Victorian Funerary Art. I have quite a collection. Morning lockets, memorial rings, wreaths created from the hair of the dearly departed. At one time, ladies' magazines had a plethora of articles about how to create items just like this. Now what do we get? Kim Kardashian's vegan stroganoff recipes. Look at these photographs. When a child passed on before its time, the entire family would dress up in their Sunday best and go down to the portrait studio to create one last memory together. If they couldn't get the eyes to stay open, they would simply paint the lids to make the poor waif look more alive. People based entire careers around it. Those Victorians, they certainly knew how to appreciate a good death. It's a wonder they did not pack their loved ones away in lime and mothballs and store them away with the winter coats. Let's have a story whilst I finish unpacking, shall we? Our author for this evening is Brian Rapata. Mr. Rapata is an expat writer currently living in South Korea who likes to spend his spare time thinking of practical uses for the undead. Who doesn't? His short fiction has appeared in a variety of publications, including Writers of the Future, Shock Totem, and Mnemonymous. It will be read for us by Mr. Vic Mullen. The Reanimation Eporium by Brian Rapata Wellaby Gearworks and Reanimation Eporium London's foremost purveyor of the decorative departed Edmund G. Wellaby Esquire No job too big or too small Guaranteed satisfaction Helping your loved ones to live forever since 1863. His sleeves rolled up, Edmund plunged his hands into the girl's open chest cavity and scooped out her intestines. His nose wrinkled at the stench, he couldn't help it, and at the same time he hated himself for it. Even after six years, he couldn't help but think of it as a weakness, but unfortunately the days when the sweet aromas of innards and organs and decay were as lovely as the sweetest hyacinth were long past. 
it took him a few fumblings with the squirmy lengths of small intestine to get them all out of the girl's stomach and into the waste canister at the foot of the workbench. The hard part was over. Everything else seemed to come out so much easier after the small intestine was removed. Then, with the skill of a long habit, he reached for the girl's spleen. He always worked in the same order. Small intestine, spleen, liver, large intestine, and so on, until finally coming to the heart. There was no mysticism in the order. Ripping out a girl's insides needn't be such a delicate matter, yet he couldn't bring himself to vary his decades-old routine. It was one of the few comforts remaining in his work. Alexander had asked him several times for the privilege of excavating the corpses. Edmund had to admit that the boy would likely enjoy himself so much more, from an olfactory standpoint at least, without the need to breathe through his mouth or clench his teeth to keep a tight rein on his gorge from the stench. But still, Edmund could not quite bring himself to give up this responsibility. Small intestine, spleen, liver, large intestine. Working late, I see. Edmund started at the voice. He looked up, his hands still wrapped around the girl's colon. He took in a breath to deliver a stinging rebuke to Alexander for interrupting his work until he saw that he'd mistaken the voice. Easy enough mistake to make, given how Alexander's voice had deepened these past few months. It hadn't been Alexander who spoken, though. Rather, it was the man standing beside the boy, dressed smartly in a black overcoat and matching trousers. Seeing his brother and son standing side by side, he was struck by how much they resembled each other. Not in looks, necessarily, but in manner. They both had the slouchy posture of the tall and gangly, something he envied, as Edmund had always tended toward the portly. Thomas, greeted his brother. He held up his hands covered in filth from the girl's chest cavity. You'll forgive me if I don't come and shake your hand. Thomas shifted slightly. He'd always been rather squeamish. <clears throat> Quite all right. Sensing that his work was to be irrevocably interrupted for the evening, Edmund took a step and a half and plunged his hands into the metal wash basin he'd placed by the corpse's feet. Your timing is impeccable as always. I'm behind schedule on this one as it is. He directed this at Alexander, who was standing at his uncle's side. At fourteen, he was less than a head shorter than Thomas, who'd always been the taller brother. Alexander sighed, rolled his eyes in his head. He's my uncle, father, he said. What was I to do? Leave him shivering in the cold? Had his brother not been standing there expectantly, Edmund might have replied that was precisely what he should have done, but instead he remembered his manners and looked to his brother. You're looking well, Tom, he said. Quite a spiffy dress. I take it the yard is treating you well. Thomas nodded. I'm made inspector now. He was careful to keep his tone neutral, without a trace of boast. He shrugged out of his coat and hung it on George, the door zombie, waiting in his accustomed spot just inside the workshop door. The only reaction the zombie gave to the extra load was a slight blink 
a result of the mechanism Edmund had planted behind its eyes. Blinking zombies had been Edmund's signature long ago. They lessened the unnerving aspect of having undead furniture staring balefully at you until all the other shops in London had taken to installing the blinks as well. Right, of course, I had heard. Olivia came round for a visit last month, I believe. Alexander coughed slightly. She came round in November, da. November? What month is it now, then? February. Already? Time flies when you're busy. Well, then, congratulations to you. He concentrated on scrubbing off the filth of entrails in the wash basin. Then he grabbed the bar of soap he'd left next to it and began to lather his hands. After a long silence, Thomas said, So, business is good then, I take it? Quite, he said. You know how it is. Lots of demand from the mills and the factories. Not so much call for artistry any longer, but it keeps food on the table. You're fortunate. I hear two of your competitors closed up shop last month alone. Their gifts burnt out on them. One of them a young fellow too. Shame. Edmund looked up, caught Alexander's uncomfortable expression, but ignored it. Shame, he agreed. Thomas left his nephew's side and took a few steps into the workshops to stand over the girl's corpse. He looked down at it, obviously trying to keep his expression neutral. He almost succeeded. Only a slight twitch of his upper lip betrayed his revulsion at the sight of her lying on the workbench with her innards splayed open. What about this one then? She was a pretty little thing. Anything fancy? Nah, Edmund said. Just the basics, then off to the mills. I see. Do you know anything about her? Who was she? I mean, not really my business. Well, if she's off to the mill, she must have been an urchin. No relatives contracting on her body, so I suppose that's likely enough. She might have been a prostitute. Nah, she's too young to be a prostitute. Thomas caught his glance over the girl's body, as if to contradict him, though he didn't say so out loud. Working for the yard, he likely saw all manner of things unmentionable, including preteen prostitutes. Well, why all this interest in prostitutes, Tom? What brings you here? Unless this is a social call. I... Thomas glanced uncomfortably over his shoulder at his 14-year-old nephew, still standing inside the door to the workshop. It's official yard business. Edmund took the hint. Alexander, please give us some privacy, he said to his son. But... No arguing. Go on now. Alexander's expression darkened, but he slinked out of the room, his shoulders slumping in resignation. Well then, Edmund said when the boy had gone, he dried his hands on a wash rag. I need your help, Thomas said. With yard business, you mean? Yes. Edmund sighed. I'm not sure what you expect me to do. I'm not a policeman and I can't make dead bodies talk for you. I'm not sure any of my colleagues have that kind of power anymore. Well, that's all right. I don't really have dead bodies anyway. Just their hands. Pardon? I think we've got another ripper. Or maybe the same one. 
Edmund stared at his brother for a moment. At length, he said, Tell me. Thomas took a deep breath. You've probably heard about it in the papers, he stopped. Or maybe not. Not if you didn't even know what month it was. I haven't had much time for reading the papers. Well, we've been finding bodies. Or rather, lack of bodies. We've been finding piles of internal organs and unattached heads. The bodies are always missing. How many bodies so far? Uh, Four this month alone. All women. All prostitutes from what we've managed to gather. And you've come to me because you think your culprit is a practitioner of my profession? Well, it's our best guess. Yes, it makes sense. You think some poor soul's gift burnt out on him. He couldn't handle it, and he's running around killing women trying to reanimate them. The words came out with slightly more rancour than he'd intended. By the slight raising of Thomas's right eyebrow, Edmund wondered if he'd given too much away. Thomas was a police inspector for the yard. He was trained to be perceptive. But Thomas made no comment about Edmund's untowards vehemence. Instead, he said, Well, that's essentially it. Judging by the forensics evidence at the scenes, we're assuming our man is particularly tall, not very stocky, not quite capable of overpowering men, so he's targeting women. This time it was Edmund's turn to betray a slight upturn of the eyebrow at the perceived subtext behind his brother's words. Thomas could have easily been describing him. Are you accusing me? Edmund wanted to snap, but he squelched the words before they could tumble out of his mouth. Thomas didn't know. He couldn't know. Could he? So, Edmund said instead, what exactly is it you're wanting of me? I'm not sure how I can help. You're one of the most successful practitioners in the city. You know your colleagues. Hell, you're practically related by marriage to half of them. I was hoping you might give me an idea which one of them might be unhinged enough to go around killing prostitutes. At least Thomas had the decency to look awkward. Something like that, yeah. I'm afraid I'm not quite as active within the profession as I used to be. For once, he was glad of Thomas's perceptive nature, so he didn't have to utter the words, not since Lenora died. Well, Thomas took a deep breath. It was worth a shot. I appreciate your seeing me. He cast a last look down at the corpse of the young girl on the table. Make this young lady into something beautiful, all right? Even if she is just going to the mills. Edmund nodded. You can count on it. He watched Thomas as he headed to the door, retrieved his overcoat from the zombie and opened the door. For a moment, Thomas looked as if he would say something else, but then thought better of it. He smiled awkwardly and turned to leave. Be careful, Edmund called after him. It's... it's cold out there. It was a ridiculous thing to say, but Thomas acknowledged it with a polite nod. Then he left, pulling the door shut behind him. Edmund stood staring at the closed door for a long moment, considering the implications of what his brother had told him. If Thomas was indeed right, and there was a former practitioner of the deathly arts roaming the street of London killing people, 
then it could well put the final nail in the coffin of the profession. Already, it had seen its heyday. Nowadays, the bulk of his business was for manufacturing cheap undead labourers for work in the mills. There was little call for artistry anymore, or the intricate gearworks on which he'd built his reputation as a purveyor of the decorative departed. He should be getting back to work. The inner gearworks in this corpse wouldn't set themselves. But instead, he sighed. Without turning round, he called over his shoulder, "'You can stop skulking. I know you're there.' And he'd been right. Alexander emerged from behind the curtain separating the shop from the rest of their home. Edmund turned to see the sheepish look on his son's face. He looked so much like Lenore when he'd caught her listening in on his business conversations. Even though Lenore had been his full business partner for many years, she still had never managed to overcome that abashed look after a pricing conversation with a client, as if it were not meet to speak of the dead as if they were a sack of vegetables to haggle over a market. That part she'd always left to him. So, Edmund said to his son, how much did you hear? All of it? I suppose the concept of a private chat between brothers is purely theoretical to you then. Alexander stiffened. He's my uncle. I wanted to hear what he had to say. You needn't concern yourself with it. But what if it's true? It's been all over the papers. What if the Ripper is one of us? Edmund frowned. One of us. The words meant innocuously enough, bit deeper than they should have. One of you, you mean. Alexander advanced into the workroom and came to stand next to Edmund over the corpse of the young woman. He met Edmund's gaze for a mere second, then looked down at the girl's body, all business. Uncle Thomas still doesn't know, does he? Edmund looked down at the girl too. It was easier than looking at his son's face. No. Alexander sighed. He's got to find out sooner or later. He's family. And with an almost nonchalant gesture, Alexander laid his hands on the girl's neck. The boy inhaled deeply to cement the aroma of the corpse in his nostrils. Then, the familiar bluish-grey glow started beneath his hands and rapidly spread out to encompass the girl's entire body. Edmund watched as the glow spread from his son's hand to the corpse with a mixture of jealousy and nostalgia. No matter how long it had been, he would never forget the overwhelming sensations of the magic. For him... It had always been like feeling infinite for just a moment, with an ethereal connection to something large and magnificent and incomprehensible beyond the mundane distinctions of life and death. When Alexander's magic subsided, the dead girl's eyes were open, staring, uncomprehending up at the ceiling. Edmund sighed. He wished Alexander wouldn't do that. Now, he would have to lay the gearworks in the girl's corpse with her staring up at him like some sort of dim-witted child, which completely unnerved him of late. Just one more silliness he developed in the absence of his gift. You should have told Uncle Thomas, Alexander said. He would have understood. The eyes of the reanimated corpse locked on him, though there was little actual seeing in them. Your uncle is a police inspector. 
If I told them my gift was gone, I'd be a suspect. Uncle Thomas wouldn't do that, would he? Edmund sighed. Who knows? He might have come tonight to see my reaction. For all I know, he already considers me a suspect. Nobody mistrusts you like family. They locked gazes then, just for an instant. Alexander looked away first. It's late, he said. I think I'll turn in. What the hell are you doing out here? Edmund shoved his hands deeper into the pockets of his overcoat to try and warm them against the February chill. He cursed himself for forgetting his gloves, but there was little to be done about that. He'd been certain he had a fashionable pair tucked somewhere in his closets, but on this night's, of all nights in the year, they were nowhere to be found. Perhaps Alexander had borrowed them and neglected to tell him, or perhaps he was mistaken and his memory was playing tricks on him. After all, how long had it been since he'd needed a fashionable pair of gloves for going out in society? As it was, Edmund felt far too overdressed for the streets of Whitechapel. He'd selected his second best overcoat and top hat so as not to stand out, but nevertheless several of the longshore men and stavidors he passed with gutter wenches and common harlots draped on their arms cast him suspicious looks as if he were not welcome in their raucous working-class taverns. They probably think you're the Ripper. Fortunately, though, the throngs of foot traffic had long since thinned out. All the decent folk had returned to their homes hours ago, and the working class had settled into their drinks around the warm fires of the various pubs and alehouses. Edmund loitered in the shadows across the street from one. The elephant's bag o' nails listening to the bombastic strains of Natty Nelly echoing from the patrons inside. It seemed an unlikely night for the Ripper to be out on his errands. Too cold, for one thing. Edmund thought any self-respecting murderer would have too much sense to be skulking about on a night like this. Too clear for another, a wonder for London in late February. The Ripper if he had a good head on his shoulder, would rather bide his time waiting for a night where he could slice in and out of the mists to creep up on his unsuspecting victims. Edmund had nearly convinced himself to give up for the night, to post haste it back to his warm workshop, to light a fire in the fireplace, perhaps, and to soak his thoroughly frozen feet in warm water in order to coax the feeling back into them. When he saw her. Her attire marked her as just out of place in these rougher parts of the city as Edmund was. Her dress was a tri-fanned front with a high collar, her head covered with a fine bonnet and a cashmere shawl wrapped around her shoulders. Overall, perhaps not garmentry for the overly wealthy, but her attire bespoke means beyond the hard-locked Harridans Edmund had been passing by earlier in the evening. She might have been a high-end call girl, but Edmund thought not. Her attire and her ramrod straight bearing identified her as an oasis of class in this loutish neighbourhood, which meant that she would be a target. 
If not for the Ripper, then for every other pickpocket, scoundrel and lowlife in this part of the city. She must have just arrived. Edmund had been circling the side streets and thoroughfares, sticking close to Durbury Street where the Ripper had claimed his last victim for the better part of an hour. How she'd managed to get here, unmolested this late at night, was a mystery. Edmund had to stifle his impulse to cross the street towards her and offer her his services as an escort to wherever her destination was this evening. If he did that, the Ripper would never show his face. Edmund scrunched closer into the shadows of the building of a bathhouse across the street from where the woman was standing to get a better angle to see her from. She remained on the street corner for several minutes, merely looking in one direction and then the other, as if waiting for someone. Edmund remained motionless so as not to draw attention to himself. In his black overcoat and black trousers, he might be invisible to her from this distance. Had she seen him already? He surmised that she hadn't when, a few minutes later, she apparently gave up on waiting for whoever she was supposed to be meeting and walked off towards the east in the direction of Buck's Row. Edmund watched her as far as he could, but when she disappeared around a corner down an ill-lit side street, he abandoned his shadows and followed her. Keeping pace with her, while maintaining just enough distance so as not to alarm her into thinking that she was being followed by a tricky endeavour, one ill-suited to a slightly portly reanimator. Twice, Edmund feared he had lost her, but realised he need only calm his breathing and listen to hear the faint clap-clap of her footfalls on the cobblestones. He caught up to her again the second time as she turned into a poorly lit alleyway. Edmund guessed that the entrance to a residence was most likely in this alley somewhere and was about to turn around and go home, satisfied that she had at least arrived home safely, when he spied the barest hint of movement. Had he imagined it? No. He peered closer and just caught the whisper of a black, shadowy figure against the blackness of the night, duck into the alleyway after the woman. The Ripper? Edmund's heart thumped in his chest. Fearing that the woman was indeed in danger after all, he quickened his pace. Should he call out? Alert the Ripper that he knew he was there? Probably. But if he did, the Ripper would only run away, and any chance Edmund had of finding out who he was would be lost. He rounded the corner and peered into the alley, and his heart went cold to match his fingers. In the dim moonlight, he saw the woman lying on the ground, the inky figure of a man dressed all in black kneeling over her, his hand pressed to her neck. Get your hands off her! Edmund shouted. It had been pure instinct. Had he had the time to properly think through his course of action, he would have realised that confronting a suspected murderer in a deserted back alley alone and unarmed was hardly a wise decision. The black-clad man started. He looked toward Edmund. 
Edmund braced himself. If the man made a run for it, the only direction he could go was at Edmund. In the narrow alleyway, he'd have to bowl Edmund over to make his escape. But the man didn't run. Instead, he chuckled softly. Edmund, I should have known. There was something familiar about the man's voice, though Edmund couldn't quite place it. If you... if you've hurt her... Come now, you must know you're too late. She's already dead. Dismayed, Edmund risked taking his eyes off the man for a second to look at the body of the young woman, as if she could read the apology on his face. If he'd only been a moment sooner. But then he paused. Something didn't make sense. People didn't die so quickly. The man couldn't have strangled her in the span of time it had taken Edmund to careen into the alley, even if he'd stabbed her, which wasn't likely, given that his hands were empty of a knife. The woman would likely be gasping for her last breaths instead of lying silent and motionless on the cobblestones of the alley. What? How? Clever, I'll grant you. Your reputation for artistry and your animations is well deserved. For all the time I've been following this woman, I never realised she wasn't even alive in the first place. Her movements were so natural. Edmund's thoughts splintered in a myriad of directions. Part of him struggled hopelessly to pair a face with the voice of the man, and another part wrestled with incomprehension. It couldn't be possible, could it? that they'd both been tailing a woman who'd been reanimated long ago? And neither one of them had been any the wiser. I... I don't. I didn't. She's not one of mine. Not one of yours? You don't mean to tell me you trusted this one to another parlour? Edmund, for shame. She's your wife. My wife? But that's not possible. See for yourself. The man backed off a step and a half, inviting Edmund to examine the corpse. Edmund did so, advancing into the alley to kneel over the woman's body, even though every instinct sensed a trap. He kept a wary eye on the man for any sudden moves, but when none were forthcoming, he looked down at the woman's face. It was true. In the silver of moonlight that filtered into the alleyway, he beheld the face of his Lenore. She looked just as she had six years ago, on the day she died. So beautiful. So young. Far too young. It wasn't possible for her to be there. He'd buried her because he'd known there was no way he could ever keep her around as a piece of furniture. He'd seen the coffin lowered into the ground. A tear trickled, unbidden, down his cheek. He wiped it away and turned his attention to the man. She was supposed to stay buried, he said. What have you done to my wife? Me? I'm afraid you're not paying attention, old boy. I didn't reanimate her. I wouldn't do that. She's my cousin. Cousin? 
Edmund searched his memory and realised why the man's voice was so familiar. Lenore had had animators in her family. If he'd remembered right, she had a cousin that had entered the business. George? Edmund said. Is that you? In the flesh. The man advanced into the silver of moonlight so that Edmund could make out his features. Black hair with a touch of silver. Handsome face with the unmistakable cheekbones that frequented Lenore's side of the family. He'd been at Edmund's wedding. Whenever they met at gatherings of London's prominent animators, he's always made an effort to speak to Edmund about Lenore. Edmund had suffered the conversations because the two of them were family by marriage. Beyond that, Edmund had scarcely spared the man much thought, just as his interactions with his other colleagues in the profession had always been cordial, though distant at best. George, what happened to you? You were a good man. A good animator. My gift fizzled about six months ago. So this is how you try to get it back? By killing innocent women? It's still there. I can feel it like an itch underneath my skin. It'll come back. You can't know what it's like. Maybe I do, Edmund said softly. Maybe I understand better than you think. How could you possibly understand you? My gift is gone too. It has been for over six years. Edmund looked down sadly at the corpse of his wife. Since Lenore. That's impossible. Your shop's still running. I have a helper. George appraised him thoughtfully for a moment. At length he said, then perhaps you do understand. He held up his hands before him, as if to animate the air in the alley. It's still there, isn't it? Can you feel it? The gift isn't gone, it's just... Sleeping? Exactly. George lowered his hands. We can help each other, Edmund. Together, we can get our gifts back. Help me. I... Edmund looked into his wife's face. Her eyes were open. She stared up at him, unblinking. Then he shook his head. I can't. It's not like that. Our gifts are gone and we just have to live with it. He rested his hand on his wife's shoulder, then stood. Come with me, George. You have to turn yourself in. I have to do nothing of the sort. You can't keep this up. You'll be caught. Hmm. I should think not. George reached inside his jacket and pulled forth a large dagger. The blade glinted in the moonlight. You certainly won't tell anyone. Edmund instinctively backed up a few steps. He cursed himself for coming unarmed out on this errand, though, in all fairness, he hadn't planned on apprehending anyone. He'd come out strictly to observe and gather information, but he realised now how naive that had been of him. George had the advantage of speed. If Edmund tried to run, George could easily run him down and kill him. He only had one option, stand his ground and try to wrestle the knife out of George's hand. They faced off. George crouched into an attack stance, hunched lower, 
his knife held out before him as if daring Edmund to close in. Edmund did likewise, painfully aware of his lack of weapons, though he made no move to lunge. They stood there, like that, for long, echoing moments, motionless. Two tradesmen who were both the furthest thing from fighters. Stop! The voice penetrated the adrenaline of their standoff. Hopeful that their conversation had drawn the attention of a bobby, Edmund turned to see who had called out. Alexander stood in the entrance of the alley. His face was shrouded in shadow, but Edmund recognised the bawling of his fists at his side and his shoulders absent their customary slouch. Alexander's trademark pugnacious posture when he was stealing for a fight. Edmund had seen it far too many times in the past few years. Except this fight wasn't with words. Alexander, what are you doing here? Edmund said. You shouldn't have followed me. George chuckled. He's right, you know, lad. Most unfortunate for you that you did. Put down the knife, Alexander said, with no trace of a quiver in his voice. Oh, I don't think so, George said. Unless you're holding a gun somewhere, I can't see it. Put down the knife, Alexander repeated, and I'll let you live. George guffawed at the boy's bravado, but his mirth petered out as a sound penetrated the stillness of the night. Footsteps. Many footsteps. Accompanied by the telltale click whir of clockwork gears. Dozens of shadows rounded the bend into the alley. They all ambled with the shuffling, stiff-legged gait of the reanimated. Edmund flattered himself against the side of the building and watched the procession go by. He recognised them all. The mothers and daughters and fathers and sons and grandfathers, aunts and uncles that he had passed through his shop in the past few years, all of those that Alexander had animated. The grandfather with the pendulum swinging back and forth in his hollowed-out chest cavity, the alcoholic father Edmund had crafted into a walking liquor cabinet upon his daughter's request, the devoted sister Edmund had fitted with a Victrola and all other manner of the decorative departed, chest cavities that housed curio cabinets, music boxes, miniature glockenspiels, cuckoo clocks and grandfather clocks, medicine chests and jewellery boxes. The throng made an oddly rhythmic thrum of clockwork staccato as they shuffled into the alleyway, completely blocking any exit. They converged around George and backed him up against a brick wall at the end of the alley. Edmund, please, he called out, panicked. Make them stop. But Edmund could merely watch as they outstretched their arms and surrounded him, closed in on him. Edmund closed his eyes as they clawed at George's flesh, and when George's pitiable shrieks began, he wished he could close his ears as well. George's cries of pain continued for what must have been several minutes, crescendoing as the throng of zombies ripped holes in his flesh 
and then his voice went silent forever as they ripped out his larynx. Edmund opened his eyes again. It was over. The throng of departed merely stood facing the end of the alley, thankfully obstructing the view of George's body. Dad! Edmund turned to see Alexander rushing towards him from the entrance of the alley. Dad, are you all right? Edmund struggled to find his voice. I'm fine, thank you. Your timing is impeccable. I thought I didn't. I'm sorry. Edmund reached out and laid a hand on his son's shoulder. Sorry? For what part? For sneaking out of the house and following me? Or for putting yourself at risk? Or maybe for animating your mother and not telling me? Alexander blinked at him. Edmund realised that his son was tall enough to look him directly in the eyes. When had that happened? No, not for that. Alexander said. He hung his head. I thought, I thought for a moment when I saw you following mum, I thought you were the ripper. Nobody mistrusts you like family. Edmund glanced back at the now still mob of the departed huddled at the back of the alley. If he had been the ripper, would his son have had any qualms about commanding them to rip him apart. Best not to ask questions he didn't want to know the answer to. Edmund took a deep breath. We'd better get going, he said. We'll have to find your uncle and let him know we, you, took care of his ripper problem. He wrapped his arm around his son's shoulder and began to steer him out of the alleyway. So you're not mad at me? For animating mum? Of course I'm mad at you. But we can talk about that later. Right now I just want to get home. They headed down the streets of Whitechapel, with the clockwork army they'd built together trailing along behind them. At Alexander's command, Lenore shuffled to the head of the pack and came to walk beside them. Edmund glanced over at her and smiled even though she didn't, couldn't smile back. It didn't matter. For a brief moment, they felt like a family again. Thank you, Victor. Mr. Mullen is a 40-year-old Scotsman who is usually surrounded in a cloud of vapour from constant electronic cigarette usage. He's generally found spending time editing YouTube videos or lazing around in the city of New Babbage, pretending to build. Well, there, that's done it. I shall have the grand opening of this exhibit on the morrow. Pity I cannot get a hold of that grandfather clock or the liquor cabinet. Just imagine building your mother into a chair which one could find solace in in times of distress. It would be quite impossible for me, as it is only my mother's skull that I am still in possession of. What? Don't question me. We were very close. 
On that note, I think we should end there. Join us next time at the Gallery of Curiosities. Gallery of Curiosities is produced under a Creative Commons International 4.0 non-commercial attribution no derivatives license. Don't sell it, change it, or make a transcript. If you like the show, tell your friends and leave us stars and reviews on iTunes. If you do not like it, well, why are you still listening? Tonight's story music was by Kevin MacLeod. Our theme song is Ashes, Ashes by Deus Ex Vapora Machina. My chorus is Walking Along by Kevin MacLeod. This episode was produced and released in October of 2017. For full show notes, do visit us on the web at gallerycurious.com. don't forget, submissions are only open for a few more weeks, so do get those letters to us.